I know this is a favorite part of my day, just watching them run by. And this little guy and I, we have a Saturday date coming up. He said, we're hanging out soon, so I'm excited about that. <laughs> John 8. In my class on Wednesday night, we've been walking through what is Reformed spirituality. And if I were to sum down real quick what it is that I am trying to accomplish, I'm trying to change perspective. There's a phrase I've been saying a lot lately that your perspective drives your purpose. So, for instance, if you have the perspective that you do not have money in your bank account, there's a lot of purposes you will not partake in, like going out and buying things. Your purpose will be to go get money to put it in the bank account. What happens in our life is a lot of times we've been told the wrong perspective to have about the Christian life. And then we are, because of this perspective, when you go to the Bible or you go to worship or just to live life, your purpose changes. There's a phrase in this song that sometimes is offensive to people. It says, once your enemy, now seated at the table. That's a perspective issue. So if you, you see that you used to be the enemy of God and that's offensive to you, then you actually don't understand how far you are and how far you were from God. Uh, the last verse says, your enemy... <clears throat> I've been brought near, your enemy, you've made your friend. Once you understand, excuse me, once you understand how it is, how offensive you were before God, and that transition from enemy to son or to daughter, this phrase where it says, I want to live for you, that's the purpose. What typically ends up happening is, I want to live for God so that I can prove to him that I am worthy of this title he's given me, son or daughter. So we work really, really hard to show God just how faithful we are so that God will be pleased and accept us. But that's not the perspective of the Bible. And John 8 is going to show this to us this morning. That our perspective should be that there is nothing within me that would ever draw God near to me. I've was born his enemy, according to Ephesians 2. And the only thing that changed my status is the work of Christ. He saved me. He set me free. I did not set myself free, which then changes our purpose. So all of John 8, we covered most of it last week. We're going to finish it. Uh, John 8 is really just one long narrative. John 9 is the same way. I'm going to have a real fun with John 9. It's one big story. I could spend the entire you know, 30 minutes just reading the story. So we'll have fun with that next week. But in John 8, 31 through 30, or sorry, 59, there is so much that's given to us that absolutely corrects our perspective of how it is that we are seen by God. Jesus presents for us the eyes of the Father upon sinners and the eyes of the Father upon the saved. And it's very helpful here because it then changes the way in which the purpose of our life comes. And so what we're going to do is go ahead and begin to read it. If you weren't here last week, basically what ended up happening is that Jesus is, the heat of his life is starting to get turned up. More and more public ministry, more and more miracles. He's becoming more and more vocal. He's going into the tabernacles. He's beginning to claim that he is God. And the religious... Society does not want anything to do with Jesus. But here's their problem. He's not like other men who've made claims 
They show up and they claim to be something and yet they have nothing to back them. No witness and clearly no miracles. Well, the leaders, the religious leaders are like, why have you not arrested this man? I don't know if you remember this in John 7. But they said, no one's ever spoke like this man before. Like what he does, we can't deny that he fed 20,000 people. We can't deny that he brought this man who is an invalid next to this, the pool of Bethesda. He now walks. Like we can't deny these miracles. What's, and just to remind you about that story, they weren't denying that he was healed. They were denying the fact that he was sinless. They were saying, you are now a sinner, Jesus, because you were doing works on the Sabbath. So Jesus is creating havoc for the religious society. Now this conversation he's having, he's having it with Pharisees. Just to remind us what Pharisees are, we sometimes confuse Pharisees and Sadducees. But it's helpful, it's helpful historically for us to understand. Sadducees were like professional law studiers. They were like lawyers. Their job was to study the law so that they could make sure it was appropriately being translated and appropriately being communicated to the nation of Israel. Pharisees were these group of people that all in all had a good heart in the beginning. What ended up happening is after the last prophet was no longer here, Israel, naturally as they'd done throughout all of their history, started to slip away. Slipped away from the commands that God had given them for worship in the temple. And so God blesses Israel when Israel is obedient and uh, does the sacrificial system and, and obeys the Mosaic law. So the Pharisees come in and they start punching back saying, we as a nation need to get serious about worshiping God. The problem is, in morality, you start pressing law on people and not faith, then you end up creating additional laws. If any of you have grown up in a legalistic background, you'll understand that legalism has the right heart, right? Typically, legalists are not trying to create a sinful culture. What are they trying to create? A good culture, a healthy culture, a holy culture. But what ends up happening is if it's, this is a perspective thing again, right? When your perspective is, my performance is what makes me holy, then your purpose changes, right? So this is what the Pharisees thought. So the Pharisees got so adamant about holy living within uh, the culture of Israel, they started to create new laws. For instance, when it says don't work on the Sabbath, they, made it, they, they started creating about how many steps you could take. So if you took one too many steps, you were, you were a lawbreaker at that moment. I mean, it was crazy, the laws that they were making. So these men who are not only coming over the law and trying to create extremism, They've created it, and now they're attacking Jesus for not living up to their standard of holiness, which is funny. Now, now hopefully this makes sense to you when Jesus says, unless your righteousness is better, right, exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So in that culture, they would have gone, well, no one's more emphatic about being holy than Pharisees. So that's impossible, and Jesus is like, exactly. No one is that perfect. So that's the backdrop of where we're at here. Jesus has been kind of going back and forth with them about the law, and we're going to just pick it up midpoint here in the conversation in verse 31. So Jesus says this phrase. So he's been going back and forth trying to, <laughs> trying to help them understand that he is the proclaimed Messiah. Verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word... You are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offsprings of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son, notice the capital S there, sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are, that you are offsprings of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not what you have heard from your father. Now, all of John 8 and most of John's letters is focused on faith in Christ. We've seen this. From John 1 through John 8, it's driving us toward the person as, uh, sorry, Jesus is the Messiah who is the Son of God, who is God, deity. It's clear that in his dialogue with these Pharisees, the religious extremists remind us that he is exposing their lack of faith, which is kind of uh, a slap to their faith, to their face. The Pharisees immediately catch what Jesus is saying. He is speaking of basically spiritual slavery. Now, of course, these Jews who would have known the Old Testament, they know that historically and physically speaking, Israel has been in captivity a lot, first in Egypt, and then throughout the, the Assyrians, and now even they're underneath Roman captivity. So they're not, they're not talking about that. They're not confused here. Jesus was referencing a spiritual slavery. Look at verse 33 again. They answered him, we are offsprings of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will make us or you will become free? What they are claiming is that they are under the rule of God. And if they're under the rule of God, they're not slaves, right? We are of Abraham. And if we are of Abraham, we have the promises and covenants that have been made to Abraham. Therefore, how is it that you are saying we are going to be freed? Are you freeing us from God? Is God our, is God our, our somehow our slave master? So Jesus takes their perspectives and then gives them an illustration to explain his meaning. So this is the next phrase, verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, it's important that we understand what Jesus is getting at in this statement as far as slavery to sin. If Jesus is saying if someone is practicing some sort of sin over and over and over, that they would not have the ability to stop that sin. Okay, So, those who sin are a slave to sin. Now, I... I don't believe that's what he's saying. And this is why. How many people do we have on television, on commercials, who are promoting some kind of an addiction, whether it's alcohol or nicotine or whatever it is, they're giving testimony of how they've overcome that, right? So they've overcome whatever it is that they found themselves trapped in. So someone today, in today's world could read Jesus' phrase and say, well, that's not true, because there are lots of people who are trapped in it and got out of it and never did it with God. Religion isn't what got them out. So we have to be careful in saying this is, you know, and sometimes this is used. We go to people who are trapped in a sin and say, well, if you believe in Jesus, he will pull you out of that sin. That's not actually what's going on here. So what sin is Jesus specifically getting at here then? Well, if you stop and think, What is it Jesus is going after in this culture to these Jews? Is it a lack of morality? Is he going after them saying, you need to start behaving better? What's he been going after? You need to what? Believe in me. The sin issue that he's dealing with is a lack of faith 
in the Messiah or a lack in faith in the prophecies that have been given to them. So from the beginning of his ministries, the, the, the Pharisees have rejected Jesus' claims to be the Son of God, the prophesied Messiah. That's what he's pointing to. This sin, unbelief, is what they are enslaved to. This sin is what they are now slaves to and cannot overcome or cannot come out of it. It's preventing them from actually pleasing God. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read this to you real quick. Hebrews 11.6 speaks to this. The sin of slavery that we find ourselves in is the lack of faith. For instance, Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So if you do not have faith in Christ, what Jesus is saying is, you're a slave to that sin. Lack of faith is a sin, and you're a slave to it. So to help them understand this, Jesus continues his illustration and gives them a simple story. Look at verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, you, you, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not do what you have heard from your father. Now what he says here is a slave is not free in the master's home, yet the son has every right to be. This is the illustration he's giving. So a, a, a master of a home who may have slaves in it, and he has a son, the son has the right to all and the freedom to do whatever he wants within the home, but the slave does not. And what his illustration is, if the son gives the slaves freedom, now they are truly free. And Jesus is saying, I am the son who gives the right to you who are enslaved. So the bondage that they are in, Jesus is the only one who has the right to free them from this. But this bondage they have brings them death. Look back at John 8, 24. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What he's saying is the slavery is to sin and the sin of unbelief. And unless you believe that I am the Messiah, I am the the Son of God, you will die in this sin. It will bring death upon you. Now it's important to note the freedom that Jesus is proclaiming. The moment one puts their faith in Jesus, the enslavement of all of sin's power is now removed. Or, another way of saying that is, you now will have the ability to see Jesus for who he truly is. They don't have to... So, so... Um, The demands upon them is believe or die. And Jesus is saying, because you are in sin of unbelief, you are now a slave to it and there's nothing you can do to change it. This is is not the first time John is trying to press this down upon his readers. So John 6 is a great example of this. They could not perceive that Jesus was the Messiah. And he kept using all of these illustrations. And he was saying... He hadn't got to the trap part, but he was saying, you're blind. Your unbelief blinds you from seeing that I am the Son of God. So why is it that they cannot see plainly in front of them that Jesus is God? Well, first of all, we talked about their 
um, their spiritual slavery and they're spiritually enslaved because of their spiritual blindness. And this is verse 39 through 48. Read 39 with me. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me and a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So Jesus just accused them of being the children of Satan. They haven't picked up on it yet. They, they, they're, not, they're not seeing it. They take a jab at Jesus in return, and they tell Jesus, well, we're definitely not like you because you were born out of sexual immorality. There was some question behind, well, we, we know culturally that Mary wasn't married yet to Joseph, but yet you came from, like, what happened here? Like, what did Mary get herself caught into and no one's explaining here? So they're questioning the origin of Jesus. Now, when they make sure Jesus understands the only father they claim is Yahweh. Is, uh, this is when they say, we have one father, even God. Now, read with me verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here, and I am here. I cannot of my own accord be, but he sent me. So Jesus isn't working about, he isn't working on his own authority. He's working on the authority of his father. Now here's, here's where the spiritual blindness is exposed. Look at verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? Sound familiar? Sounds like John 6, right? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of the father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, apparently, Jesus is playing very nice at this moment. (laughs) And I mean that. In his kindness and graciousness, he's trying to open their eyes to a perspective they cannot see and just says to them, which if I were to say this to anybody on the street, they would not think it to be a compliment. You, your father is the devil. Theologically, this is earth shattering, even to us who are sitting here. What Jesus is exposing to the Pharisees, these true extremists who want to be holy before God, is that actually you're the son of Satan. But what's interesting about this is that he's not talking to the Pharisees only. Because what we go on to learn is that all of humanity who rejects Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ is claimed to be Children of Satan. Turn with me real quick to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul clarifies this for us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And you were, so he's speaking to the church, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So spiritually speaking, you had no capacities. You were dead in them. In which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air. Do you know who that is? The prince of the power of the air? That's Satan. 
the spirit that now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our of the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It is the part of our nature. So when we are born, we come into this world, we are naturally the enemies of God. This is why in the song it says, once you're in a me, now sit seated at your table. So Jesus is talking with these Pharisees, these religious people who, they're not Satan worshipers. They're not walking around trying to turn people away from Jesus into Satan. They are actually promoting the one true God from the law. And Jesus talks to these very religious, moral people and says to them, if you do not believe in me, you do not trust in me and trust in me alone that what I say is true, you're actually opposing me and you're actually doing the will of your father because the will of my father would cause you to believe in me. But if you don't believe in me, you're doing the will of your father and your father is not Abraham. He's saying, let me make this clear since you didn't get it the first time, your father is Satan. Now look here, at, uh, real quick, if you have it, turn over to John 6 and look at verses 43 and 44. This isn't the first time that Jesus is trying to expose this to people of how blind we really are. So Jesus is just got done explaining to them how he is the bread of life, how he is the only one, the only way in which you will ever be accepted in the eyes of God. So Jesus answers their grumbling because they were... Uh, not happy about what he is saying. It says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one comes to me, comes to faith in me, comes to trust in my words, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So now go back to John 8, verse 44. You know, when I first started preaching back a long time ago in college, I would ask people to turn and then you wait to hear the shuffling of the papers until they slow down, and then you read. Well, now many, many years later, I don't know when you're done going to your... Because pe- <laughs> you're on your phones, which is fine. So I just assume you're really fast. So that was my time giving you time to get back over to John eight forty four. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Ephesians 2, by nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, what would Jesus mean by this statement? I mean, this is a lot of what he just said. What is it that Jesus caused in the garden and even in the book of of Genesis? What did he cause them to do? What is, it that Adam's, what is it that God said to Adam? If you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die, right? And what is it that Satan convinced Eve to do? By telling her a lie. You will not surely die. If you eat of the fruit, you will not die. God, God is just not wanting you to be like him. If you eat this fruit, you will be like him. So the moment that Adam and Eve ate the fruit, death came upon them, spiritual death and eventually physical death. And that spiritual death and physical death was then passed on to us. So when Jesus says, from the beginning, he's talking about from the beginning of humanity, Satan was a murderer, convincing people to, to, 
to go against the law of God. Now, the lies of Satan never seem illogical or even sinful, often because they are partially true. You know, the best lie, the best lies are mostly truth, just a little bit off. Every time you and I embrace a lie from Satan, it's not because we know that it's a lie. It's because we don't know that it's a lie. Our perspective and our sinful nature often blinds us to what it is that Satan is saying. So we still fall prey to these lies today. You know, when we believe that God accepts us based upon our own faithfulness or our own performance, that's actually a lie. If you think your obedience and your faithfulness to the Christian life is how God says, I'm good with you, child, that is actually a lie that a lot of people believe. And that lie causes so much confusion and so much uh, uh, lack of assurance. But it is indeed a lie. Jesus is going to tell us this in John 8. Another lie that we can fall prey to is that we have the power to overcome sin in our lives. So we have this ability, if we try hard enough, we discipline ourselves, and we stay focused, we can root sin out of our life. That too is also a lie. And it's a lie that many believe. To to eradicate sin in your life is a matter of effort. Paul comes hard at the Galatians for that. Who taught you witchery who bewitched you who taught you witchcraft I mean, it's pretty 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 stark language if you've begun by faith why is it you are now perfecting yourself by the flesh he says did you not come into christ by hearing the word and faith so it is a lie to believe that it is our own strength and our own power that causes sin to be eradicated in our life that is only the work of christ by faith And then another lie that we often believe in the Christian world is that our assurance cannot be found in God and we are led to despair. Our assurance can be found in God and Christ is going to point us there this morning. Now I want to remind us of how powerful the Old Testament can be to our faith. If you've been here for any amount of time, you know that I am trying to press this back into the Old Testament. Not so you can become good moral people or not because you can find David, and find a good moral story from David to be like David. You remove all the power because the power rests in Jesus. And the Old Testament's about Jesus. The story of Adam and Eve remind us of the joy of the gospel. And this is what's going on with here with John today. We are freed from the power that trapped our first parents is what we're going to learn. Jesus, as plain as possible, tells them, you are not God's children because you do not believe in me. Look at verse 45. Let's continue in the story. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? No, Again, if you don't understand the history, what they're saying is Jesus is a heretic. Samaritans were known as heretics to the Jews of the worst kind. You don't touch anything that a Samaritan's touched. You don't go through Samaria. Filthy, disgusting. God is just waiting to torch them. 
So they look at Jesus finally and said, after he's done talking, you're a heretic, and having a demon was another way of saying, you've lost it. You're crazy. You've lost your marbles. And this is where Jesus finally takes them to their spiritual death. So he's talked about their spiritual slavery, how they're, they don't realize they're slaves because they're blind. And then he says, actually, you're on your way to a spiritual death. You are spiritually dead. Look at verse 49. So these accusations. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who, who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, I too believe here that this is a reference to Adam in the garden once again. If Adam would have kept the words of God, Adam, do not eat of this tree. If you eat of it, in that day you will die. So if Adam would have not ate of the tree, if he would have obeyed God, what would have happened? He would have lived. He would have lived forever. So he tells them, if you keep my words, what is he claiming? The authority of God. Okay, so what is Jesus known as? The second Adam. Because in this command, Adam is the one who failed. Jesus is the second Adam. He's the one who had to fulfill this command. So he's saying, listen, if you obey my words, you'll have life as Adam would have had life. They would have made this connection. So John further proves the point of Jesus. People on their own are blind to who Jesus truly is. Look at verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Now we know you're crazy because you're starting to make claims that is absolutely impossible. Why is it impossible? Because Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my words, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? (laughs) they're catching it they're figuring out exactly what Jesus is saying men who are experts in the law they knew the writings of the Torah their spiritual blindness is coming fully exposed let's look at verse 46 actually let me turn back to John 5 46 you don't have to turn there Jesus says this Early on in the illustration, he says, John 5, 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, but you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? They're finally, in this illustration of John 8, they're finally there. They're finally getting it. So salvation is, you know, making this point over and over and over again seems redundant, but I think it's helpful to our human minds because we do fall into our own blindness here. Salvation is, a matter, is not a matter of exposure, a matter of time, or a matter of logic. Salvation is not a matter of exposure, a matter of time, or a matter of logic, and this is why. These Pharisees had been fully exposed to the grace and the message of God for a long period of time, and they logically could understand the meanings of the law, but guess what they could not produce in themselves? faith and how are we saved we're not saved by logic we're saved by faith so they have all of the above logically speaking and not only this 
more than what we have had. They've seen the miracles of Jesus. They heard his words. They actually saw him in person. And they could not bring themselves to believe. Why is it? Because John is saying, they're dead. They have not life within them to give them faith. So John eight fifty four. Jesus answers them. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, and I know him. If you were to say that I do not know him, I would, if I were to say if I do not know him, the Father, I would be a liar. <laughs> now Jesus is playing nice here. I would be a liar like you. <laughs> He's being very pointed. He wants them to see how enslaved they truly are. But I do not know him. But sorry, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now this is going to enrage them. But why is it going to enrage them? Remember when I read to you John 5, 46, if you would have heard Moses and you believed Moses, you would have believed me. The Old Testament church is about Christ. He's saying Abraham, and specifically when he says he looked forward to seeing my day, he rejoiced in seeing my day. So in Genesis, early on in the story, in chapter 12, there's a covenant made with him. There's a promise made with Abraham that from his seed, the whole world will be blessed. And then it's brought to Abraham. Who shows up finally? To a barren woman. Isaac shows up. Isaac is born. And what ends up happening is there's this glorious picture where the Last hope for redemption, which is through Isaac, because if Isaac doesn't if Isaac doesn't live and he doesn't produce children, the line of the Messiah is gone. And God's promise is broken. So he takes him up on a mountain, and Abraham is about to sacrifice him. And what is it happens? That God provides a lamb or a ram caught. And it's there that Abraham is beginning to see God is providing. A replacement. God is providing a Messiah. So when Jesus says, oh, Abraham saw it. Abraham knew that I am the chosen one of God. The father you're claiming to be a part of, he's talking about me. Well, of course, they don't don't appreciate this. Because logically they make the connection. He's saying, stop claiming connection to Abraham because you were born physically upon Abraham does not mean you're accepted before God Abraham knew his acceptance was in me and he was pointing to me this is why it says in Hebrews that Abraham believed the gospel and he was counted as righteous he's telling the Jews this claim of being born in the line of Abraham does not make you acceptable before God Abraham knew I made him acceptable well, what ends up happening? First, verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? <laughs> they, they can't get it. They can't make the connection. Why? Because they're blind. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out the temple they finally had enough and fully understood jesus point at that at that moment okay wait a minute you're not even 50 yet 
And yet you have claimed to be when Abraham was? I don't think so. And Jesus says, well, let me clarify this for you. I was even before Abraham because I am is a reference to God. He is saying, I am God. This is why I was before Abraham. I'm God. Now, if Jesus was a heretic and he really did have a demon, he deserved to be stoned. And that's what they were about to do. Because in Leviticus, in the Levitical law, in Leviticus chapter 24, if anyone brings blasphemy on the name of God, which to bring blasphemy on God is to claim God for yourself. I am God. That's blasphemy. So you, you and I should never do that. Of course, we're not in Levitical law. We're under grace. But these men thought, no way is this man, is he God? No way. So they picked up stones to destroy him. And Jesus finally exposed just how blind they truly were. So in all of this, when we get finished John's story here in John 8, what I find is a lot of hope because my hope does not rest in the faithfulness of myself. It rests in the faithfulness of Christ. It's not my ability to obey. So think about it so far in John. Jesus says, I have the right because I am commissioned by God and I am God and I am obeying the Father's will. And then he says, I have the right to give you life, to give you freedom, and to give you eternity. I have that right. And you know what he says? This is how it's yours. Abide in me. Trust in me. Obey my words. Well, up to this point, his words are, I'm God. Believe that. So to obey the words of Christ is to put your faith in who he is on our behalf. So we get the freedom, we get the sonship, and we get life eternal when our faith is put in Christ. Now, if you read John 6 and John 7 and John 8 in just one sitting, just read through it. This is what you walk away with. I am saved because Jesus saved me. That's what you walk away with. I am saved because Jesus saved me. I am not saved because I had enough exposure and enough time and enough logic and I put it all together and thought, this would be a good thing for me to trust in Jesus. All men for all time have never been able to logically put their faith in Christ because you can't do it because you're blind and you're dead and you're a slave. You're a slave to this blindness. So perspective, remember when I said perspective drives purpose? So if my perspective is that Jesus is the one who reached down and saved me and pulled me to himself, and then he says, listen, if you want to be my disciple, all you must do is just trust me. Trust what I am saying is real. If you want to be my disciple, just trust that. And the fact that I can trust that He tells me, oh, and by the way, that's a gift from God. Just so you know, if you actually have your eyes and see me and believe in me, that's a gift that cannot be taken away. Once you own that gift from the Father, it's yours forever. It's amazing. So if that's my perspective, when Satan comes up to me and says, yeah, but John, you are not performing well. You have sin that you've not rooted out of your life. You're not as excited about the things of God as you used to be. 
You're not giving enough money. You're not giving enough time. You're not praying enough. Whatever it is you want to put on there, you can shout back at those lies and say, but I am free and I am a son and I have life because I have faith in Christ and for no other reason. Perspective drives purpose. You don't know why we as a church have the purpose of preaching the gospel week in, week out, because I want us to have the right perspective. Now, what's interesting is that once you are free from the power of sin, and you claim the sonship, this union with Christ, we are now free to obey. We are now free to share this message. We are now free to truly worship, because we're not being weighed down by our sins. Well, man, let's get ready to go to the table. We are, we're making our way to the cross quick here. We're going to be working through the last few hours of Jesus here soon. And as we do, we're going to see the glory of the cross. But I don't want to wait till then. And this is why we do communion every week. And I never get tired of saying this. If our perspective drives our purpose, then this is the perspective I need you to have about what we're about to participate in. You, once again, are going to receive a symbol. And in this symbol, it's supposed to remind you of what you have received in Christ. You received his body bruised and beaten on your behalf. You received the cleansing of the blood that has now made you righteous, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You did nothing. You only receive you only come and receive you never offer you never this is why on the cross when jesus says the most confusing words that most people don't understand it is finished in our minds we think oh he paid for sin no he completed all work necessary for your standing before god he didn't just pay for your sins he completed the work that was required to Adam on your behalf. Because when Jesus died on the cross, at that point, he had lived the perfect life that you needed to live, and then he paid for the life you did live, and then he said, it's done. It's done. So we take these elements to say to our hearts one more time, it's done. I know I can believe a lie. I know sometimes I don't feel holy, I don't feel righteous, but I am not righteous in the eyes of God because of what I've done. Father, I thank you that it is not my schooling, it's not my upbringing, it's not because my parents were Christians that you accept me. You accept me because the Spirit has brought my heart to life and I believe. And there's nothing, not death, nor life, nor principalities can take that away from me. And Lord, we celebrate this once again by taking your table. In Jesus' name, amen.